Hello, movie lovers. Welcome home. My name is Amy Hensarling, and you're listening to Watch This List Unplugged. Today is another episode of comfy films, comfort movies, uh, and we have my buddy Tyler Harris, whose LB handle is the same as his name, uh, coming to uh, grace us with his presence as well as his uh, comfort movies, which have quite a bit of nostalgia to them and are, I think Tyler actually may be my first guest whose who's picks are all in succession chronologically. So Tyler, I don't know if this was a consideration that you had initially thought to do, but then sort of came about deciding that you were going to do that, but you are in a category all your own because of it. Yeah, so the the process of actually trying to pick three comfort films, uh-huh. I don't know if you realize what you're doing to your guests because it's incredibly agonizing. Just mm. be only being able to pick three. It's similar to Letterboxd where they only let you pick four favorites. And mm. they're constantly changing for me because I just, I, I can never settle on what, what am I supposed to pick? Four favorite movies? Out of, of all like, time? Yeah, like how is this supposed to work? So that mm. that was a really it was an agonizing process going through like all of the movies that evoke a sense of comfort for me. Um and so I landed on these three and like I think just the way that my brain works, just them being in sequential uh mm. order, which I guess we're actually moving backwards today through time. Yes. Um Well, uh, I I, yeah, I can't I, let I can't let you have everything, Tyler. I mean, you we, you you got the succession part, but then we gotta we gotta <laughs> change it up just have, a little bit. Make to, it yeah, easy. we gotta flip the script a little bit. Keep um, people on their so, toes. Yeah, so I went with three gems that I consider to be like kind of um, well, one of them is one of the biggest movies ever made, but the sort of unsung masterpieces of mid two thousands big canvas cinema in a way uh, mm. that sort of evokes uh, a lot of nostalgia for me. And uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know what exactly the definition for a comfort film could be other than a movie that makes you feel warm and fuzzy inside in different ways. Um, whether, Even- whether it be through nostalgia or, um, you know, uh, the, I think Jerry was the one that mentioned something that that I love, which is the uh, the feeling of of being kind of sick on a cold, overcast, gray day outside, and you're bundled up in blankets with a hot, like honey ginger tea of some sort. I'm being way too specific, but like you know, and then you throw on the Hunt for Red October, which is the perfect overcast, gray outside movie. Um, so like something like that, like, how could I not have picked that? Well, I didn't, how could I, if I'm going with mid two thousands, big budget cinema, how could I like the thought process here was, well, I have to go with the Lord of the Rings. We'll just go with all three. That's three Mm -hmm. movies right there. And they're the perfect comfort films. Well, guess what? I didn't pick any of them. Uh, even though you watched them prior to this, like you watched, right, right. Yeah. Like literally also, also though, Tyler, We have to mention that the first thing that you said to me was that you were seriously not as a joke, but actually considering doing Antichrist. Uh, oh, yeah, by, yeah, yeah. By Large Furniture, which does yeah. not go with your definition <laughs> that you just had unless you are a psychopath. 
but warm the, and the fuzzy warm, inside. Fuzzy that, inside. That, that movie doesn't make you warm and cozy and fuzzy. <laughs> no, quite the opposite. Actually, I know that that's shocking and hard oh, to believe. Okay, yeah. but strange. It, yeah, yeah uh, that movie has the vibes. It. <laughs> That's another you. thing. That's another thing that I consider really strongly when we get to, I think, to Silent Hill, we'll talk about this is a movie's vibes. Sometimes a movie does skirt on vibes alone, but, mm. you know. This is kind of what my friend Adam Trainer says, that he likes movies that are pretty depressing and, or, you know, they're not depressing to him. Right. But a lot of times horror is also uh, seen that way where it can be like very soothing to people and make them feel better. It's mm-hmm. got a sort of medicinal quality to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. so I guess antichrist totally is sort of like, uh, I put that in the same category. I know this is your favorite movie. Who's afraid of Virginia Wolf? It's sort of mm. an exorcism film. Yes. Um, the exorcist is the same way for me. Um, these movies where people are just, dropping their masks speaking of masks which is kind of a big deal on my profile on letterboxd and in one of the movies that we're watching today i realized Uh just like a couple days ago i sent my friend a message that like there's so much mask imagery on my profile and i didn't even realize it until just recently like eyes wide shut is the the cover photo um, Uh and there's the mask on the bed and then um kingdom of heaven is my uh profile picture uh, Edward Norton in in Kingdom of Heaven as as King Baldwin the 4th the last great king of Jerusalem and <laughs> um uh what else was masculine oh and of course the phantom of the opera being one of my four favorites so and, and that's that's a good transition uh, also yeah. you are Sort of, uh, you're very interested in masks as a subject too. Like you're interested mm-hmm. in like the shadow self. You are a mm-hmm. teacher. Yep. You know literature very well. <laughs> you're all about it. Like it, in terms of like as much as, I mean, because it's interesting that a person who has like their profile about masks to have their real name mm-hmm. as their handle. So you're not really yeah. like, you're not necessarily hiding. Not trying to hide anything. anything. Nope. Yeah. Just trying to hide from my students, maybe. Yeah. I or... have some students that follow me on Letterboxd. And... Do you really? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Do they talk to you about your movie reviews? Yeah, they say they're really long and, like, oh. did, they didn't know that, like, I would have gone that in depth. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm your English teacher. Like, of course, I go in depth on the things, like, subtextually. and yeah. Right. I would think that yeah. that would not be surprising at all, but then again, kids today, kids what do they know, days. Tyler? Big dumb Okay, idiots. so so, spe- so speaking of math. Just kidding. I love my students. You love them, and yep. they might see this, so you should probably be nice. We will start in reverse. So this is starting in the year what? We are in, no, we're in 2004. Oh, wait, you're, you're moving. Or no, forward. we're in 2006. You're, you're moving to, ahead, and, and I, I wasn't ready to I, move into the first film yet. I know, we're going to end I, with I, your I, first. I, I still, no, 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 I, I still have to talk about how agonizing it was to pick these three movies. Oh, can I could have Tyler. gone with the Matrix trilogy. Right. I could have, back. why isn't Master and Commander in this list? That's the perfect comfort film. Hmm. Why all isn't of, it? All of those are like great. You know, Lord of the Rings. 
Matrix Reloaded and, and Revolutions, Mastering Commander. Oh, oh, the Pirates Trilogy, Gore Verbinski's Pirates Trilogy. That's a comfort. Those, those are all like mid-2000s uh, crowning, crowning achievements. And what was we your deciding, <laughs> what was your determining factor, Tyler? Well, yeah, that's, I think that's where the conversation of, of nostalgia comes into play. Hmm. Yeah. That these had the most, the, the weightiest nostalgia to them? I think so. Yeah. For different reasons. And also, I don't think that you saw like a common thread between them, right? Before you, when you initially made this, you didn't actually feel like they were related because I definitely do now after having seen them, but you I didn't initially, right? didn't initially when I was just kind of like, these are the three that I've more or less decided on. Didn't see uh -huh. a common theme necessarily, but it's there. It definitely is. And we're going to see if your common theme is the same as my common theme. Yes. Hopefully. Okay. Hopefully, if we yeah. can get through them. Really, one of the things that I want to mention and that I think we can continue to bring up is just a sense of authenticity. I think mm. all three of these movies have a, a, like a genuine sense of authenticity that movies that are released today, a lot of, a lot of big, like I said, big canvas uh, films, are, they're sort of ir ironic, too ironic and cynical and you know, postmodern and deconstructive and things like that. And um, you can be deconstructive in, in po you know, positive ways, obviously. But I feel like these three films are deconstructive in authentic, genuine ways. And they're all, they're all boosted by an auteur. That helps too. Mm. So, yeah. Anyway. You're calling George Lucas an auteur. Oh, oh yeah, no. definitely. Okay. <laughs> I'll give it to you. Uh, my rewatch of this movie has, has like m much improved my memory of it. I will, I will give you that. Yeah. So I'm yeah, glad yeah. that you, I'm glad of the three of these three films, when you told me about them and that you had settled on them, Revenge of the Sith, Sith was the one that I most wanted to revisit because I associate the prequels so much with my younger brother. Oh yeah. Sure. Uh, because he was crazy about Phantom Menace, especially because he was a kid. I mean, and we saw it so many times in the theater because he wanted to see it over and over and over and was so obsessed and had toys and everything. So yep. it was speaking my it, language. It didn't become a movie that I could possibly relate to in any sort of way without disassociating from my brother and his like, you know, that whole thing of like, people's brothers in a certain time period being obsessed with star wars yeah well i think i was that brother so i think you were yeah, yeah. um yeah. and i think your brother also has a connection to silent hill as well right because he played uh silent hill 2 on the ps2 yep but did not 2. finish it like you you did the whole series right well i only ever played um silent hill through three okay and then you stopped because there's some, a bunch. For some reason, yeah, there's way too many. And that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, we won't go there. Konami and the mess that they are. Okay, so we're going to start with Silent Hill. Okay. Which is 2006 directed by Christoph Gans, which I'm yes. probably saying wrong. <clears throat> I think that's right. Okay. Yeah. If you want to say that in like a French accent, you can feel free, but I cannot. Nope. 
I, I can only do Australian <laughs> or British. British. But I, I can't do French. I, I, can't, I can't do any accents. It, at all? Not really. No. Oh, I can try. You're just American. Okay. Well, don't, I'm not going to do not. it on a podcast is my point. Okay. Why would I subject anyone to that? Yes. We're, we appreciate your discretion. Thank you. So Silent Hill is a movie that looks like a video game that is based <laughs> on a video game. Um, and it has Sean Bean, which I have learned since then that people don't really care for his involvement in it. Not because of Sean Bean. Obviously, we all love him. But just his like presence. So yeah, most tell people us- most people are wrong about most things most of the time. So that is your you edict. Know, yeah, that's that's my motto. So are you calling everyone out that I just said on this point? Then yeah, Sean Bean is amazing in this movie. Okay, but not him as an actor. I'm talking about that they don't like his plot line. They wish oh, that like it, no, no, no. It's it's what makes the movie what it is. Okay, tell me why. Okay, so what would the film be without him? Well, it'd be more like um, like The Descent, for instance, where there's sure, no, yeah. we're not outside of the cave, right? We're just, yeah, we're just right. in it. Yeah. Um, and I guess you could say that um, that Rose and Sharon descend into a bit of a cave when they descend to in, into Silent Hill. Um, yes, I think so. And there's even like, if you want to look at it from like. Joseph Campbell, you could definitely say that that they're dis- they're making the the hero's descent. The problem is that they never come out. Right. Yeah. Spoilers. Spoilers. We don't care. We don't care about spoilers. No. No. Um, we're past it. We've transcended. Yeah. They'll they'll be fine. Um yeah. so I think what um CN Bian's character does is um he helps to you're not gonna. You're not gonna call me out on that. <laughs> I, well, you you made me think of that that he is in Lord of the Rings. That's what I just I just made yes, my yes, but, yeah. Um, he, so I, I think, think of him it, as Ned. Yes, yeah, Ned, um, mm-hmm. Boromir, Sean Bean. Mm-hmm. Um, for as big of a Bond fan as I am, I don't remember which agent Goldeneye uh, sign he had in Goldeneye. Was it? Oh, I was about to say. I thought you were going to tell me you didn't know what Bond movie he was in. I was oh, no, no. I remember Goldeneye. Leave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just didn't remember which which agent number he had. Oh, okay. Well, that's doesn't right. matter. I don't know. Um, He's Sean also Bean, in Ronin, too. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, his his character helps to, I think, ground the film um, in reality. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of view the movie Literally. as this as this strange intersection uh, between – so you have Silent Hill in the 70s which is how the town, like the town at its height, which we don't really see much of. And then you have Silent Hill now, which Sean Bean is traversing through to attempting to find his wife and daughter. And then you have Silent Hill in fog, which is sort of this uh, alternate dimension. It's like another dimension uh, that they have entered into. Um, Mm -hmm. I kind of like, so Robert Fitzgerald, his translation of the Iliad, is uh, it, it translates the word Hades to undergloom. And I feel like I use that word all the time. So it's sort of like an undergloom Silent Hill mm-hmm. is. Um, and then you have uh, Silent Hill in darkness, which is actually like what how it's explained in the movie's production notes, like from the, the website 
that the movie used to have. I was able to find like the archived website of its production notes. And so you have like Silent Hill in fog and Silent Hill in darkness, which is when the sirens go off and the, you know, the creatures come out. Uh, right. The gray children and the armless ones and pyramid head and all of that. So you have this weird intersection of these four different versions of uh, Silent Hill. And Sean Bean is kind of a, an integral part of um, the narrative in that he continues to bring the audience back to remembering, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. There is a reality. Where are we? There is there right. is there is a uh, a heaven and we're stuck in the Konami Inferno. We're stuck in hell with Sharon trying to uh, find her daughter. So, right. Yeah. Or sorry, with Rose trying to find her daughter, Sharon. Sharon. Yeah. So is this comforting to you because you played the game and it <laughs> takes you back to that? Or is it comforting to you even if there were no game? I am interested in the connection between those two things because most people, when they review it, at least on LB, it's like, this is the greatest video game movie mm -hmm. ever made. And yeah. it's not really yeah. uh, extracted from that sort of reality. And I don't know if that's I think it is why you resonate yeah, with the, it. The digital surrogacy aspect is um, a huge element of Silent Hill. I feel like mm -hmm. um, the 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 fact that it was a game plays directly into the way that the text plays out and and the form okay. of the actual piece of art that this movie is um, is is kind of it's it's the actual story there's original characters and things and then there's names that are being pulled in from the first couple games it's sort of an amalgamation of silent hill silent hill 2 and silent hill 3 but not really silent hill 3 although silent hill 3 the game has a lot to do with motherhood um so i feel like that that was kind of pulled in um but uh yeah, this this movie is like um, I think I used in my review the the phrase demonic lullaby. Um, mm. So it's it's a way to uh, experience playing Silent Hill without actually having to play Silent Hill, which you can't really do anymore unless you have like an original PlayStation or PlayStation Two. Um, but again, which I have different conversation for how. Yeah how messed up this franchise has become by Konami and their, their greed They're they're Let me just say they're, they're sitting on a, on a, on a mine of diamonds uh, and, and they're not letting anyone in. So mm. yeah. Although there is a silent Hill two remake coming out soon. So I'm excited. I was to about see to say that. Yeah. Yeah. And then my brother was talking to me about fallout being an Amazon show. Yes. That, fallout that is becoming be. an, an Amazon show. Yeah. Not yes, sure which is just, yeah, this is like there's nothing new under the sun and that things get recycled to the end of time and, yeah. and that there is no new material or new ideas and et cetera, et cetera. So and it's also playing off nostalgia. Yeah. So video game movies are notoriously terrible all the time. I think right. the reason why Silent Hill typically gets pulled into the conversation um, is because it is the film that so closely replicates that feeling. Like I said, digital surrogacy. Um, the, 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 the feeling of the game is distilled here. It's not like if you're adopting, if you're adapting a novel, you kind of have to compact the novel. 
Like I know you're currently reading Infinite Jest. Imagine making yes. that into a film. You would have to compact it. Um, impossible. Uh, it, it would be impossible. Um, yes. This movie, instead of compacting anything, seems to distill the atmosphere and the vibes. Again, there's that word. And um, um, even things like the way that the camera moves. It, it moves like you're playing the game, if you notice yes. the way that, you know. So, yeah. So, um, Dan Lauston, the cinematographer, and, and Christoph Gans, like, actively worked to try and replicate the the feeling of playing the game. And it does, I feel like it does that. It yeah, really reminded yeah. me, I don't have a ton of experience, but it really reminded me of Until Dawn yeah. and playing it. Because even though, like, you're not moving the person, the way that, like, she would walk through, even, like, walking through buildings or running away or being attacked, it literally looked like, how cut scenes would look when you're watching it, when you're watching those cut scenes in a game, because until Dawn's like, I mean, I, where you, where there's scenes like it's a movie as well. Sure. And, and, and even like yeah. things like, um, I always, I always went, cause I actually only just watched this movie for the first time a couple months ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like this is a comfort film for me. That's new. Um, right. But it's one that I continue to return to, even though I might not log it over and over on Letterboxd like I do some movies. It's one that I'll continue. Like, I will literally just throw a scene on from it on YouTube <laughs> and just kind of and then let just it watch play it. out. Um, yeah. Part of it is 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 because, um, well, two, two reasons. Uh, the music is taken directly from the games. Um, so there's that. Akira mm -hmm. Yama, Yamaoka, uh, who is an incredible composer, and uh, he he he, work, he does a lot of sampling, and and so I don't know. How, this was your first time watching the film. Uh, what did you think of the the music? Yeah, I thought it was great, and I cranked yeah. it. Yeah, good. Just for yeah. atmosphere. I mean, you're. I right. think you're right. super atmosphere. Full immersion. Yeah. This seemed yeah. like. Like actually, I did that for all three of your films. To be honest, yes, yes, they all, uh, all three of these. Are, all three of them need to be cranked to film. eleven. Yes, yeah. and I, I have the sense anyway that music's very important to you, um, because not just because of Phantom, but also, um, it it seems like you're. You talked about this with me a little bit before, like the operatic nature yeah. of things that you're drawn to. I think you like things that are very, um, not bombastic, but just like, it's, it's not subtle. It's not quiet. Yeah. Yeah. Everything's on a, like a very grand scale, mm -hmm. big, yes. um, you know, go big or go so, home as far as I'm concerned. I mean, you know, yeah. I, I love like Ingmar Bergman as much as the next guy, you know, these, these sort of quiet, uh, Scandinavian dramas, you uh -huh. know, but but also, uh -huh. I, I like I, pirates. I, I like pirates. and fellowship pirates of the. Here's a question: Pirates of the Caribbean or Pirates of the Caribbean? Caribbean, Caribbean. Surely, can we take a poll? <laughs> if anybody, I'm going to tell you guys this right now. If any of you are pronouncing this Pirates of the Caribbean, <laughs> unfollow me. No, I'm oh. just kidding. Don't do that. And I'll follow me you. instead. 
and follow Tyler yeah. instead. Caribbean. Caribbean, right? though. Like, if you're going on a Caribbean cruise. Oh, no. You say the Caribbean. We probably should have discussed this prior. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just move on. Because otherwise I would have fired you. All right. So that's enough for Silent Hill. Silent Hill is worth seeing if you are a person who played the game, but that, then you've probably already seen it. Or yeah. if you're just like me, where you want something that is different because it really was a, a completely different experience yeah, for me. Yeah, the things And I enjoyed I, it. The, thank you. Good. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad you did. Yeah. Um, I know that you were worried. A little bit. I, I don't know mm. how to gauge people's reactions. I watched this movie with a friend of mine, and um, he was like almost like disassociating during the film. And, and we're pretty sure that it was like because, you know, because of the just, just the way that the movie operates was just almost too surreal in a way. Um, mm. So yeah, things that I hyper fixate before we before we move on to the next film, sure. just like the things that I that I really really love, other than the music, um, like uh, Lori Holden's wardrobe, <laughs> where she's she's the she's Sybil Bennett, the cop. Uh, yes. like just like the way that she still has the gloves on the motorcycle gloves, but she has like the short sleeve police shirt. That's so like Japanese video game made for America. And that's another thing I wanted to mention is just like how this movie distills, um, like all of these national tastes are distilled through the film of like, you have a sort of a French new extremity director taking on mm-hmm a um a japanese game uh through the lens of an american horror film and so it's this weird melting pot of all of these persuasions and and it's great it also has a lot to say about femininity and and motherhood we we didn't get much into that i know um but yeah what part of this to just to make sure that we have a through line what part of this has to do with masks Perhaps the way that, um, not necessarily masks per se, but the way that women are perceived in mythology, I think has a huge, um, subtextual, uh, play there, there, there's, there's a huge, uh, so for instance, okay, I'm like, my brain is going to like a hundred other places about this. So like one thing that I can use as an example that, that's what mm-hmm. I'll do. I'll, I'll just extract okay. an example. So there's the street. I don't know if you noticed Midwich Street. And then there's Midwich School as well. That's the school that she's going through. And there's the janitor. Okay. The janitor is terrifying to me still today. Uh, but Midwich just like hit me like a ton of bricks when, when the first time I saw it. Because like, oh, okay. I see what we're doing here. Um, if you want to read that esoterically, like that is the combination, the synthesis of the two ways that women are typically perceived in, in, in mythology. Um, you've got midwifery, the mid mm. part. Uh, so you, you, women are either, you know, uh, portrayed, uh, for their fertility aspects, uh, midwifery, uh, you know, obviously maternal yeah the the maternal aspect women are the natural selectors of our species all of this kind of stuff and then you have the witch part (laughs) which you know yeah that that also may 
play into our, our discussion someday down the line of Antichrist. But um, so, yeah, Midwich. Okay, so you have these these the negative associations with femininity and the more I suppose you could say positive associations uh, uh, with and by positive I mean like productive. Um, right. Obviously, not every woman is going to be a mother, and obviously, not every woman is a witch. But typically, <laughs> in in the in Just the, the cool ones, exactly. Yeah. So, but um, but so you've got these representations. Um, that are that are sort of distilled in 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 this just this name alone, right? And then of course you have the fact that um, Rose, well, the name alone Rose evokes, you know, the blossoming a and, feminine um, image. Yeah. Uh, but Rose is a mother, right? Mm-hmm. Except she's not, because Sharon not, is adopted, adopted, right? So. Yeah. And, and the entire reason why the plot itself unfolds the way it does is because Rose wants to take Sharon to Silent Hill to learn about Sharon's past because Sharon is adopted. And so it's like knowledge is the thing that, that Rose is seeking, mm-hmm. which ends up actually separating and untethering her and her daughter from the real world. And she falls from the she in in a way it's sort of um evocative of of the the fall of man in 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 genesis or or in john milton you have this longing for knowledge you know the the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil um and then you have the the temptation to take a bite of that apple and to to have the scales fall from your eyes and um and to to see yourself for what you are and see things as they are <laughs> right um but the problem with that is you know you're dooming yourself to to a fall to to a tragic fall which is exactly what this film is ultimately i think that rose and her maternal instinct and the sort of the disconnect between her and sharon but the disconnect that is ultimately transcended at the end of the film um, still at the end of the film there, they are not connected to the, to the real world at all. They're, they, you know, Christopher, uh, her husband, Sean Bean is like lost and they're lost seemingly forever. I know there's a sequel to the movie. I haven't seen the sequel. The sequel, I think brings, um, I, I think it brings Sharon back to her father but then her mother is still trapped in silent hill so they have to go to her so you yeah, get- but you kind of it's almost like by default when you when they create these types of things you can't really end it on a good note or you can't continue yeah most of the time. yeah so i yeah. don't know that that's necessarily emblematic of what they really were trying to say other than like this needs to continue but yes right i follow you yeah so i follow your train of thought yeah so the Sean Bean aspect of the film to go back to that is like, you know, he remains trapped in the reality of investigation. Like his, his, his entire portion of the, of the film is a kind of a subgenre of horror that I deeply, deeply love investigative right. horror. Um, things like just off the top of my head, I, I love David Pryor's the empty man, uh, which is like yeah. two and a half hours of, uh, of this character trying to investigate this cult. Uh, but yeah, so, so the, the Christopher's subplot, uh, or parallel plot 
is an investigative horror film that actually doesn't have any horror in it at all. Uh, it's just really wistful and sad because he is permanently disconnected, untethered from his family in a way. And uh, he's always digging. He's finding nothing. He's surrounded by perpetual rainfall. It feels like that's literally the last shot mm. of the movie is, is the, you know, the, the camera pans away and it's raining and it bushes uh, and then it, it fades into the credits. And then he's also aided by <laughs> Thomas Gucci, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Detective Gucci, uh, Kim Coates character. Um, uh-huh. So in a way, he's sort of doubting Thomas, I guess. Um, but yeah. And, so. th- and this is what you, this is what Tyler finds comforting because it's, it speaks to some sort of like reality of life. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, if you can't tell from my reviews on Letterboxd, that's kind of what I'm always trying to uh, extract from films are deeper metaphysical, metaphorical, mm-hmm. Uh, mythical connections um so that some something that 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 represents our reality in some way a reality that we may not always you know see be aware of yeah be aware of yeah um, also it's one kind thing of like I, a, yeah well i was gonna say that the upside down from stranger things was also based off of the silent hill game oh, okay i didn't and know that i've only ever seen the first season of that show so um, well, yeah. either way, that's also just, uh, I mean, that's communicating that there are things that we can't see right, that right, are going yeah. on. There's this, there's this metaphysical there's this reality whole, to us that, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. that um, you can't see. Right. So, and, and did, what do you think about the fact that Christopher, the father, the husband is also the same name as the director. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. I, I just, I, I, I see something like that and I'm like, okay, there's deeper stuff going on here than people give this movie credit for. Also the fact that Alice Krieg's character is named Christabella. Okay. Well, that's sort of like the, the feminine, like mirror image of Christopher. So. And they yeah. both have Christ in the name. Exactly. So there. Subtle. Subtle. <laughs> Tyler likes subtlety. That's right. Okay, Tyler, we're going to move on. Okay, all right. I'm we're sorry. Going to the I next one. Continue. Are you forever, ready? Yeah, yeah. I know you can. I know. The next one Rain is it in. reeling uh, it in. I'm reeling it in. <laughs> For those of you who loved Maestro, yes. there's a shout out. The next one is 2005, episode three, Revenge of the Sith, directed and written by none other than uh, our <laughs> the auteur himself. Uh, the auteur himself, True Canon. Uh, True King. George Lucas. True King. True King. Well, there's all this stuff about oh, right, I love right, right. reading yeah, 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 yeah. about yeah. the the canon stuff with Star Wars fans because there's like Lucas canon. I don't know if right. you know. Oh, sure. Um, I know you do. Uh, so I love that. I love people who are like devoted to the Lucas canon and that they that you know Lucas himself is just like whatever this thing has just become whatever it is mm-hmm. but then there are people who are like no if if he didn't if if he didn't say it then right um but revenge of the sith you ended up tyler watching episode 1 and 2 <laughs> i did um in addition to the three comfort films that you chose yeah. i however only watched sith um but i was um very struck by um it's sort of addiction 
quality. Um, and I almost thought it would just have been so hilarious uh, for me to do that as Amy's progress. If I had done Revenge yes. of the Sith, that would have been so funny. But I think it's more fitting that it's in comfort. But I, I literally, when I was watching it, I was like, you know what? I mean, I really could have, not just as a joke, but in, in all seriousness, because as much as Anakin, I mean, Hayden Christensen's a bit OTT, but it is getting at this this uh, seduction thing that is very, very prevalent in Phantom of the Opera. Um, and that was something that I felt very strongly with yours is like the innocent person or the unsuspecting person going about their business and being drawn into darkness um, or being allured away from the right path. Um, and so, yeah, Revenge of the Sith is surprisingly deep, I will say. Oh, it's unfathomably deep. It's it's got all okay, sorts all right. of layers and it's all, <laughs> all sorts of connections to yeah, yeah, yeah. How far do you want to go? Because like we can. Okay, I want to know. T- tell <laughs> yeah. me, tell me as a kid. Okay, yeah, yeah. Kid Tyler. Yes, yes. Um, because we're on comfort, we're not we're not on you know, uh, the dark side as right. uh alcohol or drugs, yeah. <laughs> um. What do you feel about this as just like growing up and being obsessed? And then how do you feel about it now as an adult? Okay. So when I was a a child, I have these distinct yeah. memories. You were like nine of, years old, right? Yeah. I was nine when this movie came out, which I know, right. you know, whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm young. But um, watching this film in the theater, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm pretty I, – I, I'm, I'm convinced it, it kind of changed my life in a way. Because I have such an affinity and a love for um, complex mythologies and world building and and storytelling. And I feel like, and I only just recently came to this realization on the phone with with another friend of mine when I was, we were talking about Star Wars and, and I was talking about Revenge of the Sith and it just clicked in my head that like, oh, that's where I developed my love of of like myth and tragedy and, and, and all of these things. Like at a very, very young age, George Lucas was beaming this, this crazy brain of mine with all of these images and, and experiences. And um, so like, I think back to like the Lego sets that, that were released with this movie mm-hmm. and like, just yeah. like literally being able to give a child the opportunity to build their own world and to not just build their own world, but to imitate the world that in which they are obsessed with. So, you know, I wasn't creating my own star Wars stories. I was having, uh, Anakin and Obi-Wan fight one another, you know, on, on, on the lava planet. So like, yeah, I'm imitating the story. And, and of course, you know, if you want to cut deeper than that, it's, you know, Aristotle tells us that the the root of all tragedy is imitation. And the fact that imitation has such a such a um an important um ele- there there's such an important element of imitation in like childhood development and psychology and like you see kids imitating their like parents for instance. Because the only mm-hmm. way to know what something is is to, in a way, actually act it out. 
And so right. it's like, you know, the, the childhood state of play and is, is totally rooted in imitation. But if the childhood state of play is rooted in the very thing that is the root of tragedy, <laughs> then I don't know what that says about, about our world and, and the reality that's unfolding before us. Um, True. Yeah. So, well, and even in like on writing, which I just finished, yep. Stephen King, his main, his like mission statement is to read a lot and write a lot. And the way that you learn, like he could even track his growth as a writer, depending on what he was reading at the time. That's happening with me. I'm being very influenced by David Foster Wallace mm -hmm. right now mm -hmm. and Stephen King, yeah. because that's what I'm reading. But like, there's like stages of your life where, yeah, art will inform because you are either consciously or unconsciously copying in your but i think imitation is in instinctively in an effort to find your own voice sure. you aren't you aren't going to like stay there you're not like imitating to to make that imitation your eventual identity you're trying to figure out where your voice is and what you sound like. And the only way to do that is to copy people that you feel very kindred with. So that makes sense to me that the end goal is not the tragedy. The end goal is to like transcend that stage. You don't want to like get stuck in it. The tragedy is certainly a, a, a potential result. I, I always view it as, you know, oh, yeah. the, the tragedy yeah. of, of, of Oedipus begins at the crossroads, right? So it's it's the decisions that you make in your life um, that either lead you to finding, you know, legitimate individuality and psychological integration um, or a, tra a, a tragic demise in some way. And, and oftentimes, um, you know, I teach Macbeth to my students and it's it's my it's one of my favorite pieces of literature, uh, and I and I only just recently realized this that everyone always says that Macbeth's tragic flaw is hubris and pride, mm -hmm. and I don't mm -hmm. know that I agree with that because in, in a way I do because it is his hubris it's his pride that sort of blocks his sight, um, but also it's just blatant ignorance, self-ignorance is, is what I'm trying to get at. Um, the fact that Macbeth doesn't see where he is within his own narrative. Uh, and, mm. and he's, he's unconsciously acting out, um, other people's demands and, and the fates, um, and, and all, all of these things. I mean, there's a reason why, for instance, the witches in Macbeth are called the three weird sisters, because it's not just that they're, ooh, they're weird, they're witches, they're, you know, bearded ladies and all this stuff, which, by the way, the bearded ladies, not, of course, you know, men would have played the, the parts in Shakespeare's day, but like, they're, they're right there, there's your integration of masculinity and femininity, right? So, but like, also, weird is the old English word for fate. So the three weird mm. sisters are literally able to see into the seeds of time, like Banquo says. So um, this lack of self-knowledge, this inability of Macbeth to be able to see himself within his story um, plays directly into his tragic downfall. Um, part of the tragedy is the fact that he discovers this about himself right at the very end, but it's too late by yes. that point. And I feel like 
Anakin Skywalker goes through the same thing. Oedipus goes through the same thing. Oedipus knows man. He's wise. He, he, when he goes to the city, like Hamlet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, when he, when, yeah. when Oedipus goes to the city, he's able to solve the riddle of the Sphinx. And the answer to the riddle is man there. So he, right. Oedipus knows man. It's just the one tragic flaw of, of Oedipus is that he doesn't know himself. So he ends up sleeping with his mother and having, and having children, uh, with Jocasta and, and killing his own father. And so this, this self ignorance, um, occurs when you aren't able to actually, um, psychologically see yourself in your own narrative. And so that's why I think yep. it's so important to be able to sort of steep your life in great stories and great mythologies, because the more you know about storytelling and the more you understand about heroism and, 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 and all of its different facets, um, the more you can perhaps avoid being self-ignorant like Achilles. But Tyler, I would think, like I think it's, it's also about like getting rid of the thing that is helping your deception continue. Like Anakin gets to the point where he, he can't really make a choice anymore. Um, like what you're talking about is I I think as I understand it still within uh free will whereas like with certain situations like the the in the Phantom of the Opera and in this they are enticed to such an extent that you would have to get rid of that mechanism prior before they were even able to do what you're suggesting like you you'd have to remove the thing that is blinding them to themselves before they could even be like, Oh, I can't see. Right. I mean, yeah, it's the, it's how the could question they... that I ask my students when we're reading Macbeth is how much agency does Macbeth have here? <laughs> exactly. It's kind of an impossible and, question to answer that. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the reasons why Hamlet is so fascinating, which I just rewatched mm -hmm. Sir Ken. We talked about yes. this last week um, is is how self-aware he is, but his self-awareness is, it does have a direct link to his actions. He is able to act on what he deduces and whether he feigns, you know, there's that argument of like, is he faking it or not? But I let's pretend for the sake of this argument that he is just faking sure. it for others, but he is completely there. Um, that's a perfect example by, by the of way, like a person who is self-possessed. He, he absolutely is faking it. The entire point of Hamlet is performance. I know, yeah, but some yeah. people actually think that he was mad, which I just... Yeah, I don't agree. Okay. Yeah. Those are the people that pronounce it Caribbean, so... <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> I'm just I, kidding, I Tyler. I'm, I'm just yeah. kidding. I had to tie it back. <laughs> so... Um, but yeah, I think that um, there this brings it back to um, uh, delusion and denial and being um, unable to see something until the mechanism that's blinding you is also removed. It's a yeah. twofold thing I, is, is how I so see So one of the things that I noticed in this rewatch of the prequels, which by the way, this was just such a rewarding experience rewatching those films because – for for a long time, obviously, I grew up with the prequels, and they were like, mm -hmm. 
I mean, I always preferred the original trilogy. Um, but they were still movies that like little Tyler didn't necessarily know the difference between a good movie and a bad movie. So like the prequels, I was all about them except the prequels aren't bad. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I mean, I know we're going to have a disagreement on episode one and two maybe, but, um, there's no denying the, the majesty and the sweep of episode three. I mean, Every single scene between Padme and Anakin, every single scene, I was in tears last night, like just crying like a baby at those sequence at, at those scenes. Um, and 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 what's what's strange is, you know, little Tyler was too. Like I was so emotionally swept up by those by that feeling that Anakin has of you know being plagued with these prophetic death dreams of his mother and then you know losing his mother and then for that to come back in the third film with Padme obviously there's the whole Oedipal connection between his love for Padme and his love for mother his his mother and wanting um, to save her and wanting to save her and I think there's actually there's even a moment in uh Attack of the Clones where Anakin says that he's dreaming of his mother. And this is like right when they're on their way, I think to meet with Padme or right after they meet her for the first time. in like, however many years it's been since they've seen one another, he says uh, that he would much prefer to dream about Padme. What he doesn't read like you, you, you know, not what you wish Anakin, like you will be dreaming about her and they will be these prophetic nightmares of, of her dying. Mm. And, and it's something that you can't stop. Um, no matter how hard you try. And oftentimes that's one of the, you know, one of the axioms of tragedy are people trying to stop things that are unstoppable um, and and tearing themselves apart because of it. Um, When I think of characters that tear themselves apart, I think about Hamlet, of course, because he's like in his interior, his, his, his psyche is just like totally like eating itself alive. But um, but do you feel, are you drawn to stories that where there's no way out? Not necessarily. Although, <laughs> or, <laughs> I, 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 you know, I guess I kind of, I, I like the courage. I like the, the courage of that to, to admit that maybe there is no way out. Obviously it's a, perhaps a cynical read. Um, but I, yeah, I but think it it's seems profound. like you like them where the person is like, genuinely trying very hard uh to to do it and then like failing yeah i liked um or yeah um sakana her her episode where she was talking about films where people are (laughs) trapped in their own um perhaps Mm -hmm. negative personhood but are but are desperately desperately attempting to claw their way to out goodness um Mm -hmm. and oftentimes of course in in the American seventies cinematic tradition of cynicism, they don't get there. Um, but, but yeah. So, so there, so there's something that's appealing to you that is, that is sort of like by design, these people are going to end up at a certain place. There's this fate aspect, like an, an inevitability aspect to it, but you want to see the struggle, uh, 
as being like sort of a valiant one. It's just that mm, maybe not even valiant. Like I think I think well, I think about like for instance I don't mean to bring it up, but I'm going to bring it up. I'm going to bring up the Iliad. Oh no. Okay. Okay. It's like every other review that I write on Letterboxd, but it's just such a Cuz it's on your it's mind. It's just on my mind all the time. I it can't not be. So right. In the Iliad, you have Achilles attempting to conquer a system of conflict, okay? Uh, The the warrior mentality of the Iliad is Kleos and Time, right? Uh, So the honor that you get on the battlefield, uh, the the stuff that you get on the battlefield, like uh, his war bride who's taken away from him by Agamemnon, um, he's, he's attempting to in the Iliad, reject a culture of honor, the culture that he actually serves. Um, So Mm -hmm. the the culture that he serves takes something away from him, which actually happens to Anakin Skywalker when he's not made master by the Jedi Council. So it's like, I've, I've served this culture and, and this, this system for so long, and you're taking this away from me. And of course, in the Iliad, when Odysseus and Ios and, Phoenix come to, or, or Phoenix and Ajax are their kind of modern ways of saying their names. Um, when they come to try and convince Achilles of, um, you know, re- returning to the battle and, and helping the Greeks against the Trojans, he has a complete and total rejection of their entire culture. It's it, it's an unfounded, unfathomably um, uh, terrible, devastating rejection of everything that these men stand for. Um, Mm. At the same time, Achilles is also trying to conquer death in a way. I mean, the entire, the entire poem begins with the rage of Achilles. Um, That's, that's the opening line is, you know, sing muse, sing the rage of Achilles. Well, why is Achilles is, 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 why does he have rage? Why does he have anger? Um, If you look at the original Greek, the Greek word for rage that's used by Homer is menus, and that is only ever used in terms of the gods. And so it's it's Achilles, his godlike wrath, and the only reason why it's a godlike wrath is because he is a demigod. His mother is a water goddess, but his father is Peleus, just a regular man. So he's torn between these two. He's torn between an immortal life and a mortal life. He has to die, though. In fact, he's even told this by his mother. You're either going to live on in obscurity uh, at, at, at home um, and then die, or you can die on the battlefield and gain immortal glory. But right. you're still dead, right? Um, so he's upset at death. He's upset at the fact that he's going to have to die. And ultimately, Achilles, to come back to your original point, like 30 minutes later, he is trapped in a way. He's trapped in fate. And this actually... Like, damn if you do, damn if you do. Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, there are, there are these beautiful moments in the Iliad uh, where you see the different layers of Achilles. And I will ultimately connect this back to Revenge of the Sith at some point, because when Achilles fights, or I should I should begin it at, at the beginning of the end, when he allows Patroclus to put on his own armor and go out and fight the Trojans and Patroclus dies, when Patroclus puts on Achilles' armor, he in a sense 
speaking of masks, um, that's a mask of war. You're, you're sort of hiding your, um, your, your fear for a mask of courage on the battlefield. And so when, mm-hmm. when Achilles allows Patroclus to put on his mask, he's compromising his own compromise in a way. He's compromising himself without compromising himself. And he's saying, okay, you can go out and you can pretend to be me and you can fight the Trojans. Uh, but I'm going to stay here and it's not actually going to be me. And as soon as Patroclus puts the armor on, he becomes a different person. He's not the gentle Patroclus that we that we used to know. He becomes this vicious mechanical nightmare for the Trojans who ends up being killed by Hector. Hector takes the armor off of Patroclus. He puts it on. Patroclus, close to death, gives him a prophecy that Hector himself is going to die. Hector refuses to listen to the prophecy. Why? because he's wearing Achilles' armor, and it changed him into a different person. There's this weird like possession element in the Iliad that no one ever talks about with Achilles' armor, where whoever's wearing it uh, almost becomes, like I said, an, an extension of Achilles. Okay, so we go to the, 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 the big giant battle at the end of the Iliad. Hector and um, uh, Achilles are fighting one another. If you just step a, step back and watch that, like look at it, Mm-hmm. He's fighting himself. Hector is donned in his in his armor, and Achilles is fighting sort of a projection of himself. And um, and then of course he kills Hector, and he does terrible things to his body. Uh, by the way, spoiler alert for you know a thousand year old poem, but whatever. So he he, he, he I think people will be okay if they're even still yeah. listening anymore. But. Um, Tyler, yes, yeah, bringing yeah. this back. No, to, no, no. Yeah, yes. I, I'm, I'm almost there. I promise. So, so he he, okay. he defiles Hector's body, and and then of course mm-hmm. Priam comes back, uh, c- comes to uh, the Greek camp, and he has this moment. You know, King Priam of the Trojans is protected by the gods, and he's ushered into the Greek camp, right? Um, and he shares this moment of beautiful humanity between him and Achilles, as Priam is begging Achilles to have his son's body back. He wants Hector's body back, right? And they share a meal together and they cry together. And it's this, it's this beautiful moment that occurs at the end of a, of a poem that's like 23 books of devastating war and, and, and horror and, and blood. And people are getting like spears to the forehead and their eyes are popping out. Like there's some gruesome stuff in the Iliad. But then you, you end on this note of beauty in a way, and, and these two people coming together. And I view in a way, um, Anakin as a sort of Achilles figure who, again, he's trying to conquer a system of conflict. He's trying, he is ultimately rejected by the, the culture that he serves. He is completely and totally torn between, um, his, um, uh, sort of pagan release of emotions that, 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 sort of dictates his actions, all of this passion and longing and these feelings and all of this fear. He's dictated by fear ultimately. Um, but then he's also, he's, he's torn between that and the Jedi training of rationality and detachment and civic duty and peace and, and, and tradition and, and all of these things. So, um, and, and he's also trying to conquer death. I mean, this is the entire impetus of all of his actions is Padme's going to die and he doesn't want that to happen. And so he is, he's lured and tempted by, uh, by Palpatine 
oh my gosh, I'm just going uh-huh. on forever. I'm so sorry. But like, it's so layered and dense and complex. But he, the whole, into, remember the conversation, it's the famous conversation um, when, when Palpatine is, is uh, talking to him about Darth Plagueis the Wise. Yes. So yes. Anakin is told a story and he begins to imitate the story. And he doesn't listen to the end of the story. Darth Plagueis the Wise is right. is killed. Well, Palpatine de- just decides wisely to leave that part out of the uh, out of the retelling uh, as to how how everything sort of panned out. Right. So, but I mean, he also can't resist it. Yeah. Though, so, but but the very fact that it's embedded in the story tells us that Anakin is doomed. Here, he he is doomed yeah. to fall. Um, even though he is lured and tempted by, again, this Aristotelian imitation of Darth Plagueis the Wise and trying to save Padme, he ends up destroying himself. And Padme is sort of his Patroclus, his love. And as soon as Patroclus dies in the Iliad, Achilles is basically dead. And he only comes to life again when he is with Priam and they share this moment of humanity. And I see that directly in the story of Star Wars, where if with Luke, yeah, with Padme, Padme being Patroclus, when she dies, he dies. They literally die at the same time, basically, like on screen. And and Lucas is brilliantly cross cutting between both of them on the medical table, right? Um, and 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 so yes. they kind of die, and and he's resurrected as this ghost of himself. And so throughout, it, it totally colors the original trilogy differently too, because. As Vader, the whole entire original trilogy, he fights what ultimately killed Padme, which is her children, their children, Luke and Leia. That's what he's fighting in that original trilogy. He's he's fighting these little tiny projections of himself, just like Achilles was fighting a projection of himself with Hector, <laughs> right? Um, and, and you need uh, uh, Tyler. Yeah. You you could literally like write. I mean, you should like do. Well, this think about. Well, also think life. about like if Hector's wearing Achilles's armor. How could this, in a way, translate? Well, doesn't Luke Skywalker use Anakin's lightsaber? So, like mm-hmm. there, there you go. There's the sort of the armor that 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 translates over into the. Do you think that yourself. Lucas was aware of this amount of like? I mean, if he wasn't, he was at least unconsciously aware. I mean, the man studied Joseph Campbell like crazy as a young man. So I, I think mm-hmm. absolutely it's there. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, but I would also say Luke is not just Hector, but he's also Priam. Because like you mentioned, in Return of the Jedi, we get that moment yes. of shared humanity. And that's the moment right. when Anakin comes back to life. He is resurrected. Well, that's why it gives me chills just was, thinking about it. it. I mean, it makes me emotional. That's, I, that's why I texted you about how, like, that there's an argument to be made when he goes to the dark side or becomes Vader that the that Anakin is gone, that the child, the chosen one, is gone. Um, but he's still there. Yeah, and that's very important. Exactly. Yeah, I think. Yeah, you you, you sent the screen you can, grab you of, of Vader the first time we see Vader. And in a way, you know, it's meant, it's there meant for the audience to go, wow, yeah, Vader, you know, but also, no, this is terrible. This is a terrible tragedy that's occurring before you. You're watching Anakin Skywalker die and be reborn in the dark, into the dark side, into evil. Um, Just like uh, Michael Corleone becoming the Godfather. Exactly. There's so many examples the, the of the door this that closes. is actually absurd. Yeah, yeah. 
the yeah, door the door. Closes. I mean, and then the transformation of like, that's my family, K, not me. You right. know, the whole thing of like that the the corruption. Um, yeah. Tyler, fear, we I ha- we have to get we have to get onto Phantom of the okay. Opera because we are already I know. we already. But this is bad. This is this is we, we're doing the opposite of what we said we were gonna do. Yes, but I think that this is more than anything else i didn't want to talk about like special effects yeah, i don't yeah, want to talk yeah, about lucas yeah. these Although, things just yeah. are said so much no okay. tyler <laughs> right. well one, these one, things yeah. are said to death but i do think that that what you ended up saying was was very very valuable if we could if we I'm could just touch on the the final fight between anakin and obi-wan just once just because it it is it is like i so I, I can cry yeah i i genuinely think it's the crowning achievement of 2000s cinema is that fight sequence a a thinker who has kind of influenced my own uh personal outlook on life and and the way that i read art and things like that is camille palia and she wrote a Mm -hmm. book called glittering images uh which is like her attempt to kind of in a very brisk way take you through the history of art and give you her take on things and the last thing that she includes at the end of the book is the fight between Obi-Wan and Anakin. She, I mean, there it is. There's, there's just, the crowning achievement of art. Throwing basically. that out there. Yeah. Uh, she calls it a black mass, which I think is just such mm. a profound way to put it. This, this you're, you're watching this sort of almost like a funeral um, occur in front of you. And like I said, yeah, and a betrayal, tears, I mean, tears, and yeah, and oh, um, you know versus... those like weird non-narrative films, like not weird. I mean, I love non-narrative film, but like uh, Samsara and Baraka, the director of those films, Ron Fricky, uh, who's sort of worked a little bit with, uh, oh, what's his name? He did Koyanis Katsi. Um, you know, do you, you know these things? Am I just speaking a different no, language? Okay, I'm him. sorry, I'm sorry, but like yeah. one, one, the guy who did those two. Uh, Samsara and Baraka, I believe, is Ron Fricky, and he's one of the um, the sort of like he's not the the director of photography on the film, but he's he's like one of the kind of second in command, and he's the guy who went out to get all of like the lava exploding in the background and stuff that's sort of superimposed onto like all of the miniature work that they did. Um, there is an incredible documentary called Star Wars in a Minute. Star Wars within a minute, I think. And it's a, it's an episode three. It was on, it was on the DVD that I got for Christmas when, when the movie was like, you know, I was like obsessed and I would just rewatch the special features over and over. It tells you that like, uh, all of the stuff that goes into the making of that one, they're just one minute of Star Wars and they, they use a minute from this fight sequence. And it goes into like what each and every person on the crew had to do in order to make this work. And it's, it's brilliant. Mm. Um, it just gives you such a deep appreciation for what's, yeah. what people, what people just watch in right, five definitely. minutes. Yeah. And yeah. Like, they just oh, let it glaze over them. And it's like, no, 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 uh-huh. no, 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 no. Right. You don't understand how much no. love and care went into this thing. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I called in my review of attack of the clones. That's one of the reasons why I called George Lucas a pre and post production filmmaker only because it seems like he hates making movies, but it, it seems like he loves writing films the before yeah, and, after. and then also editing them. Um, so, which is why he needs someone else to do the in between, but we, we won't, won't go, go there. there. 
Okay. So Okay. Um So the yeah. the final film is 2004's Phantom of the yes. Opera, directed by Joel Schumacher, who has done <laughs> so many movies that I can't even the thing that I always associate him with, oddly enough, is Batman and Robin. Uh and like Batman Forever. Yes. But he's done so many he's yeah. done so many films. Batman um, Forever is a but, legit masterpiece, by the way. Beautiful tell film. Me, Beautiful okay. film. T- tell me also, Tyler, you said you were for Andrew Lord Weber, you were in the top two percent <laughs> of people last year who listened to this soundtrack on Spotify, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This so is, this is music that you love. Yep. Music. The music. I the music of say the night. That word, the angel of music. The music of the night yeah. from the angel of music. Um, but tell us uh, why. I, I just now realized, by the way, for those who are not watching this as a video, I started in the afternoon recording and now the sun is gone <laughs> and it is dark in the room that I'm in because of how long that Tyler uh, and I have been talking. Oh, you this mean, is you, going to absolutely. You mean just how long I've been talking? Yeah, 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 that the I, sun was I'm, out, I'm, I'm, I'm and now it's I'm gone. Sorry. I'm like, you, you, so if you, this, I have like, like this thing on the cool back of vibe. my head that, like, if you wind it up about a particular movie, I can just go. It's and okay, go. Tyler. I just, I just, at this yeah. point, it's like we're good. Um, tell us why this is comforting to you. Um, and then, uh, this particular version because there are, there's a lot that goes with Phantom of the Opera, but I'm. I don't. I I couldn't tell when I was watching the movie if it was a movie that you love particularly, or if it's like the themes mm, yeah. or the story. What is it that like really compels you and draws why you not, in about this? Why not both? Or, no. Yeah. yeah the thing that both? actually draws me in is Gerard Butler and his his is that cape true? waving, his magnificent cape waving. There, it's I always know when Tyler is about to give me a bunch of ten money. times. He waves his cape uh-huh. ten times like a gothic vampire. It's the most glorious thing ever. Do you? I will give you this, Tyler. You, that this version had um, the reprise and all. I ask of you before it gets to the sort of like where the intermission part would right. have been is very satisfying on a visceral level. And I listened to like Sarah Brightman, Michael Crawford and all these other different versions Mm -hmm. trying to find that sense of like gravitas and like intensity. Mm -hmm. And they really don't really, they really don't nail it to the, to the level that the film does. Interestingly, I thought there's a, there's a, there are a lot of um, Broadway snobs out there who say that the singing in this movie is terrible. And Mm. To that, to well, that, I simply say, why don't you try to hit the note that Gerard Butler hits in Music of the Night? Go ahead, give it a try. Tell me how bad the music is yeah. or the singing is in this movie. Then after that, so um, Tyler, we'll just we'll just alienate alienate ourselves from the Broadway community, so. which is so. not going to be listening to this podcast, probably for the best anyway. So um, yeah, unless it's Cats. So what speaks to you? Oh my gosh, we, we won't, won't go, go into, into that, Tyler, because you. Although I got, I got. What a cat is story. your draw? Okay, so um, yeah, what brings you to this? Yeah, movie, to this again, movie? this idea that you know there there was this sort of last burp of um, <laughs> authentic 
genuine, lush and lavish cinema uh, from from the mid two thousands, and this movie strikes me as um, very genuine and very authentic and very heartfelt. Um, people, the people who made this movie, seem to actually have like an appreciation for the story that they're adapting. Um, Mm -hmm. and so that's, that's the sort of movie side of it. I love how lavish it is and rich and, you know, just the way that it looks and the golden hues. And then like when you're underneath the city, you've got like that green fog that rolls over. Yeah. The undergloom. Good. The, the, the green fog that like rolls over the, um, the, the sewer, basically he's got a sewer gondola. Um, <laughs> I really want a sewer gondola, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's a fun word to say, fun yeah. phrase to say. So, so that's the movie part. And then of course there's the actual story part, which obviously I, I connect, I connect with it a lot. Maybe not like my own life experience necessarily, although, you know, um, there, there's some stuff there, but you know, um, the themes of the film are, are, are deep and tragic and it's a, it's a beautiful story of, um, uncontrolled, unrequited love. Um, Mm. Rachel Zegler talks about Snow White and she talks about the prince being a weird stalker character and all this stuff. And I I don't think she's right. Um, I think that there's way more to the story of Snow White than, our modern interpretations of gender politics will lead us to believe there's a lot of, a a lot of psychological uh, significance to fairy tales um, about the integration Mm -hmm. of the genders um, and, and, you know, sleeping beauty wakes up and that is the, the birth of consciousness, the birth of femininity, Um, you know, snow white, can't stay with the dwarves forever. You know, these seven dwarves that represent these sort of segmented, uh, aspects of, of masculinity in a way. Um, she has to go find the, yeah, break free from, from, from the, the simps in her life. And, um, (laughs) and, and in a way, Phantom of the Opera is a fairy tale. I, I view it as a fairy tale and it's a tragic fairy tale because ultimately Christine does, she is not a, there's that she has Christ in her name again. There, there, there's that again, but um, she does yeah. not integrate the two men in her life. Like a common typical fairy tale would see her do at the end. She's torn between these two men, uh, Raul and the phantom um, and the Phantom is obviously the one that we're supposed to be the most sympathetic to, perhaps even empathetic to, uh, but he's also extremely flawed. And so Rachel Zegler's critiques of Snow White could actually apply here because the Phantom is creepy and he's weird and he's been like, and he's jealous, jealous and, and, and yeah, he's, he's everything that, that, Christine maybe doesn't want in a man that she'll spend the rest of her life with. However, mm. he is everything that supposedly, <laughs> at least within the realm of the film, I should say, like within the text of the movie, she's everything that a woman might want, like 
for one night, I guess you could say that. Um, like, like, you know, you, like you look at like the Google, the Google researchers that came out with that book about like pornography and women and what women's tendencies are. And they're like the, 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 like the Harlequin romance novels and like pirates are a big deal. And, um, you know, like millionaires, like 50 shades of gray, that kind of thing. Like, you know, um, the sort of dangerous side of, of, of masculinity, the untethered or uncontrolled chaotic Dionysian side of, 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 of masculinity, dark brooding. These are all words that I think of when I think of the phantom. Uh, but of course, Raul is Apollonian. Yeah. He's order. He's the white knight. He literally rides on a white horse when they fight at the the cemetery. Um, he's chivalry. Um, and so you have this, this great character of Christine who is like, like a fully fleshed out woman with feelings and, and passions and, you know, an art that she participates in. Um, and she's torn between these two men. And you could read that as a, you know, oh, this movie is, you know, regressive because it it says that a woman has to find her worth in, in a man. And that's not it at all. You know, it's it's sort of the, the tale of Beauty and the Beast. Like the whole entire point of Beauty and the Beast is beauty has to tame the beast. She has to render the beast into a man. Um, and so that's sort of the Phantom's journey is he has to accept his deformities as part of himself, Mm -hmm. not the mask that he wears, not the persona that he puts on. Um, And the question is, is he able to do that? And obviously I do not think he is able to do that, which makes it a tragic story. I I don't think he accepts himself for who he is at the end of the film. Um, His deformities and his control of Christine, because again, the creepy part of the Phantom comes in when you start to realize that he has been like manipulating her life since she was a child. She, her father right. had these dreams of an angel and all, and then so like, and then the Phantom comes in and like whispers to her through the through the like the sewage grate or whatever. Um, uh, and, and he's been manipulating her from since she was a a, a little girl. And at the same time, it's like the dark, right? Side. Exactly. It's, it's, it's Palpatine whispering, you know, yeah. things into Padme's yeah. ears or, or, or Anakin's ear and, uh, like, like a serpent and the devil in the garden. Exactly. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I view his deformities as, as, you know, sort of this arbitrary tragedy of the world. Like bad things happen to people, bad things happen to good people bad things happen to bad people, bad things happen to children. And he's a child. We see him as a child, a deformed child. Um, and like the elephant. Yeah, man. exactly. Um, and, and so there's this element of the, his deformities being natural. And of course, if we go back to our discussion in silent Hill and the way that, you know, that women are represented by mythology, um, you know, femininity is 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 supposedly chaotic right it's the chaotic it's the the chthonic um release of 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 you know nature in a way um again like women being the natural selectors that's the that's the direct link between between women and nature i guess you could say and so in a way he masks his deformities he masks that 
um, arbitrary tragedy of the world that is on himself. And he also tries to control a woman. He tries to control right. um, the very thing that represents in a, in a psychological way, I guess you could say, or a representative way, a metaphorical way, um, the arbitrary cruelty of the natural world. And it doesn't work out for him ultimately. Like the, the, he can't have her. The, the only place that the Phantom can actually have Christine is on a stage of his own production. It's fake. It's right. not real. Right. Which is the same thing as Silent Hill, right? They're only right. when they're reunited at the end, it's it's in something that isn't reality. Yeah. And in Silent Hill, they're not even they're not even reunited. Like Christopher walks out on onto the porch and like he can't see her. He can only feel her for the rest of his days. Like that's the phantom. Is that unrequited like he the, so so he says he uh, I think the lyric is he was bound to love you when he heard you sing and so yeah all the sing. training that the Phantom has given Christine has actually led to Raúl falling in love with her and taking her away from him so he has done right, this to himself right. and he he is perpetually going to be lurking behind the statue watching Raúl and Christine together caressing the rose yes. that she drops right his rose but yeah. it's also that rose that is going to forever stay on her grave, you know? Um, so there's a beautiful element to it because it's unrequited love. And because those are, that's a big theme that makes people, you know, invested and, and, and crazy, crazy and, and, you know, emotional. Um, but so, yeah, so it's beautiful, but it's also deeply tragic and yeah. And, and that is the theme of your comfort films is tragedy. Yep. <laughs> The reality of the world, uh, which is yeah. which is so it's so interesting in terms of you as a person because you are so like upbeat and positive, and I feel like you have a genuine hopefulness and optimism to you. I mean, it you couldn't be a teacher if you didn't find value in in passing these things on. So. It is an it is an interesting. I wouldn't even say dichotomy necessarily because I I like the way that you phrased it earlier about that these things aren't necessarily opposites or like this it's this thing or mm -hmm. that thing. It's just it's more that they're two sides of something or they're just the flip side of something rather than being completely autonomous on their own yeah. standing. Yeah. But I, I do find that interesting that 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 would produce a sensation in you that is that makes you feel relief in some way. Sure. Well, see, is, see, is seeing these things represented and and purged in a way uh -huh. like we go back to that we were talking about. I don't even remember what we were, what brought up. Why did I bring up Virginia Woolf and The Exorcist and and other things i don't remember but it's like that that sort of yeah, exorcism yeah. and yeah, yeah. This sort of cathartic actually um, this cathartic thing mm -hmm. i mean like there is something deeply cathartic about seeing the phantom smash the mirrors in his lair you know like it's a sad moment but it speaks to something deeply true and isolated and scared and lonely inside of all of us um 
you know, the, the inability to look at a, in a mirror at yourself. Um, so it's like, have you seen sex lies and video? Sadly not. No. Yeah. Okay. Well then I okay. won't spoil it, but there's a moment there where Graham does something about his situation and he can see yeah. it clearly. I was going to say, this is what I love about my favorite films. Like Virginia Woolf is mm-hmm. my favorite film. Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? And it's not just that they have an exorcism. It's that the exorcism then directly leads to them seeing the truth of their situation and they are able to move forward. Yeah, Like there's a reason that it ends with the light coming in the window and her, he, him saying who's very Virginia Woolf. And she says, I am George. Revelation. So, so right. Yeah. And that, the, that it's not just, it's not just that it's tragic and like you don't, you can't do anything to change your fate. It is that no, like actually we can smash this illusion. Um, I'm aware of it mm-hmm. now and I can do something about it. Mm-hmm. And that to me is the most powerful cinema easily, or the most powerful thing in mm-hmm. art period. The most powerful thing in a relationship is to get to a point of communication where you're no longer fighting about the same things or arguing about the same things. If you both can see what's actually going on. Yeah. And it's kind of what we're all like, trying to do at all times yeah the the interesting thing like we brought up masks earlier and there's um obviously there's a lot of mask play in this movie um and literally yeah it's and masquerade right yeah masquerade and then of course like even the costume design in masquerade like the costumes are black and white sometimes they're literally even split Mm -hmm. down the middle like one person is black and white and so you have that what well we didn't use the word dichotomy but you have that maybe integration, right, um, of, of the, two, the two sides of the coin and, and people. The masks are, are interesting to me because, uh, of course, everybody wears masks. Um, even now, like I'm wearing a mask, like, you know, I'm, I'm, this is a podcast and I'm like, here I am, like uh, presenting myself to the world and blabbering on for over an hour about the Iliad when nobody wants to hear about that. They want to hear about revenge of the Sith, but, and they also want to hear Amy's opinions. You didn't eat, you logged Phantom of the Opera and you didn't rate it. I want to know what you think, but like the masks that we wear, um, you know, there, there's something to them still like, uh, Nietzsche in beyond good and evil. He says, whatever is profound loves masks. Um, and so there's, there's an element of the human nature that is drawn toward, and again, there's a reason why the Greeks <laughs> uh, played their tragedies out with masks, right? Um, so there's, there, you know, like the Phantom in this movie, he longs to hide behind a mask. Um, but it's, and, and I, again, I feel like that's a very empathetic um, reality of, of something that people can relate to. Everybody can relate to. Uh, but also it's well, and that's the theme of like David Foster Wallace. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Like I was just, I was just reading good Mm -hmm. old neon right before we recorded and that he's literally the main characters. Mm -hmm. Neil is talking about being a fraud and he gets therapy because he's a fraud and he's been a fraud all his (laughs) life. And the whole thing is about being a fraudulent person who manipulates people and knows how the game is played. And so go to therapy. (laughs) There's no, but there's a scene where the analyst thinks that he's pointing something out and saying, well, you know, if you were really a fraud, you wouldn't 
be able to tell me the truth about you being a exactly. fraud. And that really saddens yeah. him because he's like, that is, he knows now that the analyst cannot yeah. help him because that's the most obvious conclusion that anybody right. could come to. Um, and that what we're really, what we are really yearning for, um, and maybe this is a little bit off topic, topic, but it, it, it struck me today very strongly is we are learning, yearning for someone who can't be fooled. And we want, we want someone or something that we can't manipulate that will expose us and that has enough, Foster Wallace calls it firepower in this story, but like has the ability to actually help us. And as soon as we figure out that we can pull one over on people, we're disinterested. And, and they, they are at bay. To a certain extent. Do you extent. think that and that's so, who Christine is to the Phantom? That she cannot unmask him? Both that she can and can't, because she actually physically does twice. She she un, she takes his mask off. Yeah. yeah, but not not in a transformative she she doesn't have the tools within herself to be able to do such a thing. Right. Which again is is the tragic element. Um and, and also the the sort of the 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 meta part of that is the only place that she's able to take his mask off is one in private underneath the city where no one else can see. Mm -hmm. And then when it happens in front of people, it's on a stage again, as part of a production that the phantom himself has meticulously put together. And it's a fiction. It's not reality. Um, but she breaks that fiction by ripping his mask off. And that's when everything just crumbles apart. And it's like, he wasn't ready. <laughs> he wasn't ready for that. Um, well, it's the same thing that's explored in like, I mean, I, that you just reminded me of like Synecdoche, New York, where he, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character makes an entire soundstage of his life oh, and right. has yeah. people yeah. play characters. And um, then eventually you get so blurry with mm -hmm. your distinction that you don't know what things happened or what are real memories and all of that. So that gets off in an entirely different yeah. tangent, but I do think that it's, I understand what you're saying about perhaps the value of artifice, um, and the value of like pretend, um, it, either allowing for or enabling a deeper truth to come out that wouldn't be facilitated otherwise mm -hmm. if you were only dealing with the real. And, and, and so in that sense, it's actually... Yeah, you useful. see that happen in this film, but also you see it fail. I think that's why it's deeply mm -hmm. poignant. Um, I think that's why it speaks right. to me. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great film. Would you agree, question mark? <laughs> The only reason that I'm so iffy on it is because I don't know that I like it as a movie at all. Really? Um, yeah, like I think that it's so not gratuitous exactly, okay. but just it's it's so much for me. And then there's all this stuff that I read like years ago about Emmy Rossum. I think she was like 17 and Patrick Wilson was like oh, 38 sure, yeah, or something yeah. and it there's all this other stuff in my head that's like very mm -hmm. uh topical for for the actual yeah. film that got in the way of my of my thinking and I but I do think that the this is sort of a, a different 
feeling, I suppose. But the thing that it that it spoke to for me personally in this particular example of the film is that sometimes when you feel like your your emotions are so ordinary, it's nice to see them exaggerated on film. This is how I feel about Moulin Rouge. Um, it's how I feel about, like, like you're saying, like big production, big canvas movies, because it takes what you feel are sort of um, feelings that you'd be ashamed of or feelings that you think you should minimize or um, like jealousy, mm. self-loathing, things that you're trying to like discard and aren't Addiction. acceptable. When you see them, yeah, when you see them in an art form where they're allowed to be their overblown selves, it does feel Yeah, better. cathartic, melodrama. Um, um, yeah, yeah. That's a yeah, really good to way to a certain to put extent. It. And I, th I think that that's how I felt watching Phantom. Okay. And I didn't really know how to rate that. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. So, um, so that's where okay. I was at. Okay. I'll accept it. Mm. And for that, Tyler, one hour and 33 Jeez, minutes oh, later. Jeez, oh, no. To, re to recap your films. Tyler wants you to see Silent Hill, Revenge of the Sith, Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith, and Phantom of the Opera. Such Tyler, a, it's been a pleasure. A strange, I hope that yeah, you watch this yeah. back and, and that you appreciate it. We have now we have now recorded the length of a feature film uh, <laughs> over 90 minutes. And we, everybody, we knew thank it was you for tuning happen. in. Yeah. We did. I, I'm glad that okay. we kept well, it under. Thank you so hours. much for having me on. Real quick, I just want to shout out my wife, who is also named Amy. Uh, if it wasn't for her, I would yes. have never seen the movie Phantom of the Opera. This is the one movie. The other two movies are very nostalgic to me. I did not grow up watching Phantom of the Opera, but my wife did. And so in a way, I kind of like vicariously live her going to chorus and watching Phantom of the Opera every year uh, because the teacher had no, no better movie to show them, I guess. Um, so, so, yeah. So, anyway. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Very yeah. sweet, Tyler. Thank you and pleasure. We'll see you at the movies.